0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I'd actually always felt like I was a bit misaligned and perhaps hadn't made the ideal choice for myself very early on in my career.
2: This is Anna Black, and when she was an exploration geophysicist, she felt,
1: well, stuck. For years, I actually couldn't put my finger on what it was that, that felt out of alignment and, and wasn't working for me. And it was intermittent as well. So the feeling would come and go, and I'd be okay for a few months and I'd be working on something new. And then the feeling would come back that, no, I don't, it just doesn't feel like this is what I should be doing. I was a bit of the, the sort of square peg in a round hole.
2: Sound familiar? Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and in this episode of This Working Life, we're looking at what happens when we're stuck in our jobs or careers. From why it happens to how we're not alone in it and how we can get unstuck using some useful tools like shifting our mindset. We get tips from Ash Barty's mindset coach. Oh, and don't worry if you're feeling stuck right now. Getting stuck is not a bug in our system, it's a feature in our success.
3: I had been and have been stuck many times in my life, and I think a lot of psychologists study the things that plague them.
2: This is Adam Alter.
3: I'm a professor of marketing and psychology at New York University Stern School of Business and the author now of three books.
2: And his latest book is called Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck and Thrive When It Matters Most. And yes, he's an Aussie that has ended up working and living in the States.
3: And so for me this was very personal response to having been stuck many times. I was stuck as an undergrad, I've been stuck as a I was stuck as a grad student, I was stuck as a professor many times. And so I, I always sort of wondered whether there might be some sort of guide that could be written for people in my position. And it turns out that a lot of us are stuck a lot of the time. And so I ended up writing what I think of as that guide.
2: So let's talk about that feeling when you're in the stuckness. some um, There are some great study respondents and there's one, respondent 384, I'm stuck in a thankless job. I want to be able to start my own business. I want to take the leap, but I'm worried about my finances, the uncertainty of going out on my own. Thinking about this leaves me numb and devoid of emotion. What is it like in that stuckness? What's the experience like?
3: Yeah, there are two broad categories of responses that I've seen. One is what you just heard, a sense of numbness, a sense that you're not really fully living life, that you're in a kind of hiatus, floating along, the days pass by, and it feels like you're in a holding pattern, like an aeroplane circling over the airport. And I heard that from a lot of people, and a lot of them were talking about work. You know, they go into work every day, and they plow through a job. They do what they had to do to get by, but they really weren't enjoying it. It wasn't bringing them any fulfillment, and they knew there was something else they'd like to do. Some of them didn't even know what that other thing was, but a lot of them did. And then the other kind of response, I think, is even more extreme, and I heard this a lot too, that... It's just an incredibly aversive experience. There's anxiety, there's sadness. Some people say it's as strong as depression. The key thing that I heard over and over again was the sense of isolation. So you feel, despite the fact that I discovered this is almost a universal experience, that everyone feels stuck at various points, people feel very lonely and they imagine that they're the only ones in this position because we do such a good job of hiding our stuckness from other people.
2: So how should we respond to feeling stuck then?
3: When you recognize that you're stuck, the first kind of response you need to have is the appropriate emotional response. For a lot of people, this, this sense of stuckness is really aversive. It feels bad and humans kind of flail in the face of it. And flailing is great when you're physically stuck, when you're trapped, but it's a terrible way to respond when you're intellectually or emotionally trapped.
2: What's a great example or case study that would bring to life what you can do to get unstuck?
3: Yeah, so I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. This is about the jazz pianist Herbie Hancock. And Hancock was at auditioning for a band that was led by Miles Davis, who was an absolute giant of the jazz world and was also terrifying. He was a, an extremely, extremely competent, accomplished musician who also knew exactly what he was looking for from his musicians. And when they didn't deliver exactly that, even publicly on stage, he would scold them. And the fascinating thing about Davis, Hancock tells this story that Hancock was this young musician. He was just uh, just up and coming, very talented, but unformed and had not played a lot with the, the giant musicians of the day. And so he was auditioning with uh, Davis's band and they were auditioning at Davis's house. And Hancock walked in, was terrified. He's looking around and he sees some of the biggest musicians of the age, people who he knew and had studied and who he revered. And he starts jamming with them and he's absolutely nervous about the whole process. He's terrified. And Davis is watching, obviously, because it's his audition. And a couple of minutes into the audition, he throws his trumpet down on the couch and he goes upstairs and they don't see him for the following three days. And Hancock, in his mind, is convinced that he's blown the audition. So what does he do? He says, how often am I going to get a chance to play with giants of the jazz world? So he starts having fun. He gets a little bit more expansive. He starts experimenting. He plays more loosely. He gets more relaxed. Three days pass, and at the end of the third day, Davis comes down the stairs like a kind of god, He picks up his trumpet and he says, that was amazing. And Hancock says to him, I thought I'd blown it because you went upstairs after just a couple of minutes. And Davis said, no, man, I knew knew that if I stayed here, you were going to keep being conservative. You're going to be careful. I didn't want the careful Hancock. I wanted the kind of Hancock that you became, the one that was expansive and relaxed. And so what Davis knew was that by listening on the intercom from his room, which is what he was doing, he was gonna bring the best out of this young unformed musician. Now, even though he was usually really harsh, he was laid back in this context. And I think in the workplace, the best leaders, even if they are have high expectations and they are generally tough on their subordinates, you've gotta know when to take the pressure off. And that's, I think the biggest thing, this is not just about leaders, but it's also about how we work with ourselves and and the kind of leeway we give ourselves in situations of pressure and, and uh, where we, we really have to perform. It's really important to take the pressure down, to kind of dial them, the volume down a little bit so that we have room to breathe.
2: And sometimes, you know, if you're really concerned about something, you know, you get that feeling of holding something too tight and you're kind of strangling it rather than holding it lightly and then letting that, you know, sort of genius flourish if you can. How does that holding on too tightly contribute to stuckness then?
3: Well, it it does a number of things. I think one version of holding on too tightly is, is raising your expectations to perfection, where you demand a standard that is just impossible for you to meet in any situation a lot of people talk about this distinction between excellence and perfection where excellence is you jump over certain hurdles you have certain standards you meet those standards or you try your very best to meet them that gives you agency it gives you a sense of of being able to bring your best self to that situation excellence on one day might not be excellence on another day and so you give yourself a little bit of room to move and some flexibility the problem with perfection and perfectionism is as a philosophy is that There's absolutely no room for humanity. You can't be human. You have to be essentially a calculator or a computer and you have to bring perfection every day. And that's just not something that humans can do.
2: Back in 2009, Charlotte Blair was working in the UK as an account manager for a global telco.
4: And I felt pretty irrelevant. I felt like I was doing lots of admin tasks, filling out lots of spreadsheets, CRM systems, and things that really led nowhere, things that you knew people were not necessarily going to look at. And the targets that you had felt sometimes unachievable. And it just felt this piece of irrelevance what am I doing working here and then I moved to Australia and I thought it would feel a little bit different different view it it felt a little bit better but then that kind of irrelevance crept back in and I'd always think on a scale of one to ten how much do I love my job and when I thought about that question it was invariably a five and I would think there's so much more to life than this. So it made me think, what do I really want to be doing? What does contribute to purpose? And that started me on my path of discovery of what might get me unstuck. I went on quite a long journey of exploring, did I want to become a manager? So I would talk to other managers and go, no, don't want to do that. I had a mentor at the time. So I explored lots of options of what I could do and, the more I found out, the more I realized that that's what I wanted to do, being able to contribute to helping other people and helping other people discover what makes them unique and love what they do. And, And the more I did, the more I found out, the more I realized that's the path that I wanted to go down. And then as I started it, to become a coach and help other people discover their strengths, I realized that that was making a, a, a difference so it was going off down an exploratory route and going no no that's not for me it was a bit like those those books those husband books that you've got that you know that's not my puppy is coats too fluffy and it's like no no that's not for me that's going to be too you know tedious or that's going to be too maths related no that's what i want to do that's that's my puppy so that's what gave me kind of fun and that sense of fulfillment
2: Adam Malta has more advice for us. After the emotional response to being stuck, we then get to the second pillar of getting unstuck. He calls it HEAD.
3: This is the strategy or the series of strategies you can use. I go through a whole series of different ways of, for example, dealing with creative blocks. If you're a writer or a musician or in business or something like that, and you need to be creative.
2: So what's a case study that's uh, helpful for us to understand HEAD?
3: Yeah, so HEAD is really about the kinds of strategies we can use to bring our best selves to whatever sort of stucknesses we're experiencing. And there are a number of versions of, of head. One of the ideas that I really like is the idea that, particularly in the workplace, you're very rarely isolated. You're very rarely alone. And so I like to talk about the idea of essentially putting together a sort of brain trust or a team. You know, it could be something as grounded as a team, but it could also be as an individual, who do you go to when you want advice? And there are really three kinds of people that we turn to for advice. The first kind, I think, is obvious which is, you know, a trusted other, a friend, someone who you think of as very competent, someone who often is a lot like you. They have your background, your expertise. Maybe you live in the same place. Maybe you grew up together. You probably have a lot of the same demographic characteristics, though maybe not all of them. These people are very valuable because they mirror what you feel and do. They magnify your strengths, but unfortunately, if you're stuck, they're probably going to further entrench you because they'll confirm what you've been doing. So you need two other kinds of people. The one kind is kind of person known as a non-redundant actor. And this is a very big way of saying they are different from you. It's not that they disagree with you actively. It's just that they are not redundant with you because these people bring very different things to the table and that makes them incredibly valuable. And then the third kind of person you need is to go even further than non-redundancy. And this is something that Pixar has done with a lot of its award-winning films. Brad Bird, one of the producers on many of the Academy Award-winning Pixar films, is known for actively seeking out one or two black sheep in any team and the way he does this is he'll say okay we have this team of animators who have basically been immersing themselves in this kind of soup of believing that the most important thing we can do is make the fur look like fur on our monsters the water needs to look like water the hair needs to look like hair and then he brings in a storytelling expert who says, you know, the first day that storytelling expert comes in and says, you're all insane. That makes no sense. No one cares if the fur is 90% like fur or 100% like fur. It's all story. If you lose them in the first five minutes, it doesn't matter how good the fur looks, we're going to lose. And so you essentially want to bring in a, a sort of cat amongst the pigeons that says you know what, what you're doing is, is okay, but it's, it's probably not the best way to do this. And they push back, hopefully in a productive way. And so you need those people who agree with you. You need those non-redundant actors, but then you also need these people to push back, the black sheep. And so I think as far as head goes and, and thinking about having the right kinds of heads in any decision or context, it's useful to have all three of those.
2: And then the last source of friction we need to assess is habit.
3: The fact that action is paramount, it doesn't matter how much thinking you do and how much feeling you do in the right kind of way, you ultimately need to do something to get unstuck. And one way to do
2: this is to experiment. One example of this Adam loves is the success of American Olympic swimmer Dave Burkoff
3: a swimmer who in the mid 80s was at Harvard. Harvard was not really known for its swimming program, but obviously there were many very bright people at Harvard and Berkhoff was one of them. And his coach was well known for being an experimentalist. Experimentalism is this philosophy of treating the world like a child does, as though everything's a sort of matter of curiosity. Like, is this really the best way to do things? Asking a million questions about everything. And Berkhoff was really restless as a swimmer. He was a backstroker. And he swam in the 100-meter backstroke. That was his primary event. But the problem for Burkov was, A, he hated practice, which is a problem if you want to be an Olympian. And, B, he was a lot smaller than the other athletes. In fact, the Australian coach, the famous Australian coach, Laurie Lawrence, met Burkov and was like, I don't he understand. He wrote him off, didn't he? He wrote him off. He <laughs> said, I don't understand how this bloke thinks he's going to compete with the giants of the day at 6'5", six, 6'7", six, these very tall guys. So what Burkhoff did was he discovered that you swim much faster when your whole body is immersed underwater. And he developed this technique known as the Burkhoff blast-off, where he would push off the wall and then stay underwater for almost the full length of the Olympic pool, almost 50 meters. And by the time he emerged, he would be 10, 15 meters ahead of the other swimmers. He broke all sorts of world records until the time when they all recognized this brilliant tactic and they caught up with him and figured out that that was the way to swim. But my favorite part about him was this... This kind of curiosity, this hunger for knowledge and for testing and pushing back on whatever the conventional wisdom was of the day. And so that experimental approach is, I think, a really valuable way, not just to, to get unstuck, but to prevent being stuck in the first place much of the time.
2: The experimental approach Adam talked about is also a tool used in decision-making psychology in weighing up what we should do and why. Enter Ben Newell, Professor of Cognitive Psychology at the University of New South Wales. Ben, there's a term you unpack in your book about our comfort zones when it comes to making decisions, and it's the dichotomy of exploration and exploitation. Can you explain these and how they can be used in a work context?
0: Sure, yeah, so exploitation and exploration are two simple terms to think about the ways that we can explore our environment or make choices. A simple example is that you might have come up with a particular way to to get to work, right, your commuting route and you've established it. You do that every day. That would be an example of, of exploiting. You've come up with a solution, you do it each time every day. But on a certain day, the bus that you take may have been cancelled or there's road work, so you have to make a different choice. At that point, we talk about exploration, so you have to go different route, literally you know explore a different route to work. And that exploration that has probably been triggered by you know a rare occurrence, a rare event can start you to break out of the routines that you've been in before and perhaps you now realise, oh, actually if I take this route to work, it's, it's quicker or it, there's less traffic or whatever it might be. It's important to be able to recognise those cues that can break us out of those routines that have become too established and too exploited is an important way of, of, of overcoming being stuck in, in particular routines.
2: Why is it important to do that?
0: I think it's important because if you don't, then you can get trapped in particular ways of working where you don't realize that there are better solutions to what you're doing. <music>
2: big part of getting unstuck is digging deep to figure out what we want and why, and this involves some mindset exercises, and who better to take us through them than Ben Crow, famously known for being tennis champ Ash Barty's mindset coach.
5: First thing is, is to do a diagnostic on how am I feeling now, right, and just got identify okay, what's going on for me right now? Is it stuck in my relationships? Is it stuck in my career? What stories am I telling myself? It might mean I'm not good enough, loved enough, smart enough, successful enough, so forth. So the first thing is to kind of identify. It's kind of identify, you know, who am I from my inner fan and connect with my inner fan, not my inner critic because we're really good at saying what we're not. You know, I'm not good enough, successful enough, smart enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough friends. I don't have enough, you know, shoes. And we suck at saying what we are.
2: Ben says there are five big extrinsic motivations that are actually distractions and can make us feel stuck.
5: We've lost sense of who we are. So in the absence of that, we go after what we want and we get distracted by these extrinsic motivations. And the big five is money. Once I make that kind of money, then I'll be validated. But I had a client in New York who told me recently, once I made my third billion, I thought my dad would love me, right? The second one is materialism. Once I get that car, that house, then I'll be validated. The third one is corporate status. Once I get that promotion. The fourth one is social status. And the fifth one is this craving recognition from others. It's obsessing and caring what people think about us rather than what I think about myself. And I think that's the distraction today.
2: And according to Ben, there are three things that can help us get unstuck. The first one being play.
5: That's number one, curiosity, creativity. The second one is purpose, finding meaning in my work and doing something that really matters to me. And the third one is potential, getting out of my comfort zone, and realizing the possibility of what I can do with whatever gifts that I've been given. Now, if we were trying to get in flow, if I was trying to get an athlete in flow, they're the same three things. Play, purpose, doing something that really means and matters and matters to me, and potential, right? Mastery, mastering my craft and getting present would be the other one, right? So now these are intrinsic motivations, but if you don't know what they are, you'll go after extrinsic motivations, hoping that that will suffice the fact that deep down I don't feel that I'm good enough or loved enough. So we keep searching for it in all the wrong places, in my opinion, and work and keeping busy is a beautiful hiding place, right? For the substitute of deep down trying to work out who I am.
2: What if there's somebody in our workplace who themselves are stuck, but they might not know it, what do we do then?
5: What we do then is we help them understand some of the mindset muscles that they might not have tapped into. The first mindset muscle is acceptance, but the second one is agency. Just to realise we have the power to choose and decide how we interpret our version of events of our lives. Just knowing that shifts our perspective immediately, right, from expectation to appreciation, yeah? or from developing, a, you know, I've I got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do this, to I get to do that, right? tap this into appreciation in the most amazing way, to shift from resume virtues to eulogy virtues, but just to realize I have complete power over how I decide to interpret what happens to me, then you realize it's not what happens to us in life that matters, it's how we respond. Well that, Lisa, is literally life-changing for people when they realize they have that power because at the moment they're letting the conditions of their environment determine their mindset and their attitude. But when you realize, uh-uh, it's my decisions, not the conditions, and I decide to be happy regardless of I've just lost my job or my relationship and so forth, I decide to be confident, I decide to be I decide to be me, I decide to be grateful. That's literally life-changing so tapping into that superpower of agency and then the third one was be understanding just how powerful compassion is and self compassion is because unfortunately they've been seen as a sign of weakness the most courageous people in the world that I know are courageous because they've tapped into compassion
6: My name is Nikki Smith. For the last 10 years, I've been working as a psychologist and career change coach, helping senior executive people but also people from all professions and all levels to get unstuck. So people come to me, they've potentially climbed the ladder and they're looking around and thinking what's next and they either have too many ideas or no idea as to what they might do. And then if we think about perhaps all professions, or levels, hitting – a plateau in terms of challenge and development. As humans, we do need to grow and evolve and we need a mixture of certainty and uncertainty. So when someone plateaus in a role, they can get demotivated and bored and it can start to erode confidence over time. A lot of people coming to me mid-work life are craving more meaning and more impact. You know, there are big problems to solve in the world and small problems (laughs) to solve in the world and that desire to feel more purposeful at work is a big driver of why they're feeling stuck in their current role. And so, again, the either no idea or too many ideas is a reason that they're stuck. Another one is making some attempts in terms of making a change. So, applying for jobs or looking at job search websites, but either not seeing anything that they're interested in or putting applications in and not getting traction. And simply, we haven't been taught how to do this. We weren't taught successfully, most of us at school, at TAFE or uni, or even in our jobs on how do we get unstuck in our career? How do we get to know ourselves? How do we figure out what's for us? What's the roadmap to making it happen.
2: Part of the roadmap to getting unstuck is leaning into that vulnerability and telling people when we feel stuck. Adam Alter agrees that being open about being stuck is hugely important.
3: I think it's important because you want to discuss it with other people. I think it's important because it turns the temperature down and it makes you feel a lot less lonely anxious isolated it makes gives you room to breathe it makes room for you to to try new things when you don't expect perfection every time you can start slowly and then work your way up to to better products to better outcomes and i think that's really important when you're stuck very few people go from stuck to 100 kilometers an hour you know you've got to get there and so there's got to be this process between that that joins the stuckness to the stuff that you're looking for and that only comes if you forgive yourself along the way
2: Oh, and for Anna Black, who we heard at the beginning of this episode, it took years for her to get unstuck. And her message is, don't ignore the feelings of inertia.
1: If you're feeling stuck, if there's an issue in your career, then it can impact every area of your life. And for some people, you know, work is just work. Even if you work to live rather than live to work, you still need to be happy enough and content with your work it needs to be fulfilling your own criteria it's quite possible to stay stuck for years but if you're miserable or it's impacting your life in a negative way then you'll look back and you'll realize that 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 was time wasted and and that you wish you'd done something about it much much earlier thanks to my guests to
2: sound engineer tim james and to producer zoe ferguson i'm lisa leong Thanks for listening to This Work in Life. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby.
6: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover
3: more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.